Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm back here with Inez. Uh, Inez, how are you? I'm good. I didn't just come off a plane like you did, so I'm <laughs> fairly comfy here. Yeah. Have you spent a lot of time in Texas? Some time, um, but only in a couple of the cities, and I feel like they're all so different. Um, but my favorite part of Texas that I've seen is San Antonio. It just reminds me more of the West, but. Mm, okay. I've never been to San Antonio. So I've been to Austin a few times. Um, and then I've been to, uh, uh, so this one time was to Dallas and I don't know if I just got not a great, you know, like section of Dallas, but I, you know, I, I described it as a scorching strip mall, uh, on Twitter. I think that's and, most Texas cities. Yeah. That's what people Honestly. said. And nobody, nobody, nobody really disputed that, but you're telling me San Antonio has, has charms. Okay. I, I should, I need to check out. Uh, Actually San on Antonio. that count, San Antonio is, I think better. If you go to the old city, it's just, it's got a lot of, I mean, obviously uh, a lot of Western history there. TR recruited the Rough Riders at one of the old hotels there. They have a bar that's been around for, you know, it's just, it's, it's really, I, I like the old city. Yeah. Yeah. Is it like, like sort of a Spanish style? Like, yeah, like San Diego it's all, or it's like, all like Spanish style architecture that's been there for quite some time. And it's, I, I like it a lot, but I, that, cause I don't like that strip mall large. Look, I, I know people move to Texas. They don't move to Texas be, because of like, um, you know, because it's a walkable city or something like that. They, they move because of, of economic opportunity and certainly the state has done really well in, in a lot of those things, but I, I can't do the, the sprawled suburbia. I don't like LA for that reason either. Yeah, we're not we're not real we're not real Americans. I guess they the real Americans do appreciate do appreciate strip mall. There's has to be a reason the country the country looks that way. But okay. Um and so yeah, I'm you know, back in back in LA. Um and you know, I've been following and as you've been following uh, this Ocean Gate thing where these uh five people went down to explore the Titanic. Do you have any Titanic like um I was watching the CBS report and uh this woman had been saving for thirty years, right? to go down and see the Titanic. Do you get this? Like, I, I think like a lot of women have these like celebrity or like they, women sometimes are into the Titanic. Like, do you have any understanding of like someone who would do something like that? I, I think there's probably a lot more dudes that are into the Titanic, the actual wreck, not the movie. Right. Um, just because it, it seems to me like one of those dude obsessions, like world war two or the Roman empire. Um, but I, I have a really good friend uh, who is one of these Titanic obsessives and um been chatting with him about this and sort of uh he, if he had had the money i think he probably totally would have gotten into a tiny uh tiny sub to go and see the wreckage of the titanic because he's really interested in the history of it so um it's a sad yeah. sad incident yeah yeah i mean so and and my you know idea is like look people wish like people in the abstract wish we had like a more risk-taking society we had a more dynamic society we had people um who are going out and trying to do uh, new things and then the instant something happens right we turn around and we say where were the regulators uh right and you know from my perspective these were people who took their own risk um, I think one of them was like a 15 year old boy. So maybe because he's a minor, you know, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's different, but you know, they do, they sign a waiver. Um, and then, you know, the coast guard goes and looks for them. And so maybe that's like a hole in the system and like, you know, they, they, uh, you know, they cost the rest of society something if they get lost. Um, but I don't think people will be satisfied if you just say, well, the coast guard is not going to go look, go look for them. Right. I, I think that's not like the point. Right. I think that's, that's sort of a red herring. Um, but these are, you know, adults, well-informed adults, and they're making a decision. Um, and like, 
you know, this, this is, this is risk. This is, this is what it is. And like, you know, I don't think you can just, you know, you can say, you know, you like progress and you like dynamism and then say, you know, our, our sort of attitude is nobody can ever die. Um, do you have like a similar reaction to this? Yeah, there's also, I mean, I have that reaction for sure. Um, also something about, you know, vitalism and, and the courage to explore things. Um, this seems to me, obviously this is sort of a, decadent version of that instinct right it's not like they're really exploring the frontiers of the ocean for some kind of intrinsic or or um, advancement or discovery they're they are taking a joyride or they were um but i still find that impulse more admirable than the impulse to pile on them for doing it i mean i would be very afraid to do that um for good reason as it turns out but uh, you know, it, I think they knew they were doing something dangerous, but they were going to do it anyway because it interested them enough to see this wreck of the Titanic. I don't think I don't see anything to criticize there. I see something to some extent to admire. Um, obviously, you don't want, you know, that you want some sort of parameters on that uh, on that impulse or at least a counterbalance. If everybody in a civilization is like that, you very quickly you know, burn out, but uh, it just seemed to me very actually quite American and not because it's unique to, to Americans, this kind of impulse, but because America is still a young country, we don't have some of that world weariness. Um, it's still in our uh, manifest destiny in the push West is still like part of our national imagination. The closing of the West and the frontier was such a small period of our history, honestly, like the part that we see in Westerns, maybe, you know, 30, 40 years, really. Uh, but it has this outsized sort of sense in our in our culture and and how foreigners see us as well. I mean, um, I think there's a large part of that frontier culture that's identified with Americans, right, um, from abroad. And I just I, I I find the impulse to dump on something like this to be small souled in a deep way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, I you know, are people really? Um... You know, are people really uh, dumping? Like, I, you know, I've seen. Like, have you seen anyone um, like attack the actual people who's not like an anonymous socialist? Like, I've not been on Twitter, so I've been flying. Um, but have you seen? Like, I, I feel I've seen a lot of people say attacking the people who are attacking. You know, the, I've seen people attack the CEO. I've seen people attack the company, and you know, it's not. I don't. It's not true that it's just. You know, it's just a joyride because once you know, once you make a discovery, once you try something and it works. Um, it could be used in other places. So withstanding pressure to go underwater, uh, that that is not something that just has to right, stay. Right, but we already you know? have. I mean, this was a new design, but we already have um, well, it was much, craft it's much that cheaper. can go much, much. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't know what their impulse was to extend it. Anybody's attacking them. I've seen a lot. The sentiment I've seen a lot broader than anonymous tankies on the internet um, is, oh, it, it's, it's sort of a species of the argument. I think when we were going to the moon, you had a lot of, protesters with signs that say like we we can't even feed all the hungry children why are we going to the yeah. moon um, and i've on, seen on the I've moon seen, was like a song at the time right and i, I think it's, i've seen a lot of that like if we can't save all the migrants for example like why are we going after these five billionaires um why are we bothering to try to save them you know why are resources quote unquote going into and you hear the same criticism is leveled at elon musk too about spacex right like why are you spending all these billions of dollars on space travel when you could spend it feeding hungry children here at home and on Earth? Um, and I, again, I do think that's kind of a small-souled uh, sort of way of looking at human advancement and the possibilities 
of our species, really. And I, I, I'm not being particularly articulate, but I, I really dislike this, this sort of crabs in a bucket instinct. Um, it seems very just kind of contemptible to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, and I think that like, you need people need a story. I mean, people need like sort of something to be pushing towards. And like, look, like, you know, exploration and technological investment does help people uh, in the end. And I think that there's like, you know, there is like the socialist logic of just like, oh, if, uh, you know, Elon Musk doesn't go to space, then like the war, civil war in Congo will, you know, be over or something, right? It, it's just like this very like simplistic understanding of like moving resources around. But, you know, what I'm concerned about this is like, I, I think it's going to have a regulatory response and probably maybe not even just, maybe not even in this, you know, ocean diving space. Uh, maybe like also like in space, like I've heard, heard people say, oh, look, ocean, you know, uh, the um, uh, sky blue is like also has like these safety issues. Is, is that the, that's the, the Bezos, the Bezos, um, you know, the, the uh, Bezos space exploration thing, right? And so people are like, you know, NASA has like killed like a pretty large portion of people. They sent it to space, right? It's inherently very hard. And, you know, what happened was they just like didn't do like the kinds of, you know, these kinds of like ambitious missions anymore. And that's like how they stopped killing people. And so it's like, I mean, you look at like the, you know, investigation, you know, like the uh, exploration of like the Western hemisphere or like most parts of the world. I mean, there had to be people who took risks. So, yeah, I mean, this is just something that like, you know, I think we should we should live with. I mean, what it's what it's like what it's adults who can, you know, know the risk and who can know like to, to, you know, take take it upon themselves. The CEO, you know, was down there with with the uh with the vehicle you know underwater uh he believed enough he believed enough in it yeah i don't think like you know i really hope like the regulators like don't come for this kind of stuff because i think that could that would be a disastrous result yeah i mean maybe we'll talk about this more when we talk about stuff not working and increase in sort of industrial accidents and um but there is some aspect of this i think it is increasing I guess I have two points. One, there is a gendered aspect to this, right? Um, I think men tend to be more comfortable with risk. Uh, it makes sense biologically why that would be so, right? Women protect children at home. Um, if we're thinking about evolutionary biology, I think women are much more uncomfortable or most women are much more uncomfortable with huge risks uh, in a way that especially young men are. Um, that's why <laughs> you've ever seen that internet clip where there's the two kids and uh, one of them, like the, the girl goes very carefully down the slide and she's sort of like inching her way down. And then the, her little brother comes behind her and it's literally like flies head first off the slide, right? There is something inherent in this. Um, it, it produces a more dynamic economy when you have more of that kind of risk taking. It also produces more volatility, more, you know, potential uh, for, for accidents and stuff like that. Um, but hopefully just like in life, um, you know, there's a sort of balance between the male and female impulses here that, that, you know, maybe it wouldn't be good to have a country all full of, you know, Elon Musk's. But on the other hand, we don't really want, and we're seeing this now, we don't really want, uh, you know, managerial economy and society run by HR women in middle age um, with all of the, their sort of impulses, right, to safetyism, to, um, you know, communal decision making, to against grandiose risk. Um, we're seeing, I think the downsides of having a society like that as well. 
Yeah. I mean, the guy might have been a fool. I mean, I, like, I don't know, like, anything about the science and, you know, neither does anyone else, um, you know, commenting, uh, you know, on this thing. But, uh, you know, what I do know is that, like, you try things and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And sometimes things that sound crazy, you know, do end up working and, you know, you build on human knowledge. So, yeah, we're in the, we're in the same we're in the same space here. I don't think it is that decadent. I mean, I think going down and seeing the Titanic is is pretty cool. I mean, you know, of all the things you could, of all the things you could do in the world, there's, there's worse, you know, worse, worse ways to spend $250,000. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly think this is a more noble way to spend your money than, you know, another party in Dubai. Yeah. Especially in Dubai. Yeah. And then there's but I like, picked it for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Flying in Beyonce or, or whatever. Yeah. There. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and there is, they, they did bring scientists. I mean, there was the CBS report from six months ago. They did bring scientists like on this sometimes. And like, you know, it's like some people, you know, said, yeah, they, you know, we already know how to, you know, uh, get to the ocean floor. Like, yes, but like cost is everything. And like, there's an, there's an entire universe of like underwater, um, uh, you know, marine life that we know very little about. Right. And so any scientific advancement in this area is going to like, you know, bring, bring knowledge to the world. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, you, you, I mean, I think like, you know, I, you know, I think you explore, you do, you break things and then, you know, people, people who are willing to take the risks have to be willing to take the risk. So, yeah, I think we, I think we, yeah, I think we agree. Um, you know, we have pretty much the same instincts, uh, on this. Um, okay. Well, you know, we, our condolences to the, to the, the five people who lost their, their lives here uh we're recording just after it was announced that i don't think they found the bodies but they found like the debris so uh like you know they're saying they're probably gone um okay and so uh yeah the other thing uh, i wanted to talk about was uh there's this ezra klein um piece um he said you know that he uh he had an op-ed uh where he talks about he read uh desantis's book and he thinks political books are important. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but he says, you know, that's like sort of, it's telling you how the politician wants to be uh, seen uh, by the world. And then there's a Ezra Klein podcast where he talks to uh, a guy named uh, uh, Carlos uh, Lozado, I think is, is his name. He's a, uh, yeah, Carlos Lozada. Um, he's a, uh, another columnist. Um, and you know, we you read this too. What, what did you? What, what was your take on sort of the Ezra Klein take on DeSantis? Because I think I thought there was like you know something's old here, but something's new too. Yeah, it's funny to see your own views sort of um, or your own perceptions reflected back at you from this sort of funhouse mirror analysis. Uh, so in that sense, it was kind of fun to listen to this podcast. Uh, I don't know if I share the idea. That or, or the view that political books are really important. I think too often they're completely just they're ghost written. Maybe the the presidential candidate um, gives some direction to the book, but most of the time it's really bland pablum that you could get from listening to two speeches from that person extended into a book form. Um, but I, I'm I'm happy to uh, <laughs> happy to posit there there might be exceptions to that. I have not read the Desantis book either, but. Um, there seemed to be a couple critiques they made on the podcast. One was uh, that his perspective from the Tea Party days has changed considerably from a focus on constitutional norms to a focus on crushing his enemies um, and doing it in a systematic and competent way. Uh, one, I, they, they kind of intimate that, oh, maybe he's just going with the winds of the party. Um, I find that really, really 
unlikely given how many millions of Republican voters have gone the same way, including me. Uh, so that indicates perhaps since we're not running for office or um, that there's something to this. I think I've seen it memified in form, you know, the political grid of sort of authoritarian left and right and so on um, is sort of the libertarian right is, is symbolized by the no step on snake, right? The curled up, don't tread on me snake. Um, and then the authoritarian left is symbolized by like a boot coming down to crush the snake. And then the snake sort of rising up into the authoritarian right quadrant. I, I think that describes my my political sort of changes over the last, you know, 12 years or so since I was a big Tea Party person. It's really how I entered politics. I joined the Tea Party um, in, in a couple of different states, actually, just because I, I was moving around at that time um, and found them the people that I was around enormously admirable. Uh, I think it shaped a lot of my democratic and populist views of being around these people, um, which I hadn't really, my parents are immigrants. I'd lived in the Bay area in California, you know, um, had, had heard about the knuckle draggers of the country, um, really did not find that description to fit the people that I was alongside in the tea party. Um, but yeah, I think there's a very organic way to move uh, and I think it's largely what happened, you know, that the Tea Party was sort of the gentleman's revolt. It was pointing to a lot of the excesses of the left in ignoring the constitutional structure and culture, basic culture of the country. Um, and when that didn't work, the, the gentleman's revolt essentially didn't work from and it, the, the type of people who were in the Tea Party tended to be small business owners. They tend, I think even the New York Times at the time uh, was so shocked to report the education level of the Tea Party, um, average Tea Party respondent to the surveys was higher um, than than the average American, not lower, as they had portrayed. Um, so I think it was sort of the, I don't want to say elite, uh, because I think this goes to the heart of some of the questions that they were, Ezra Klein was drawing and this guy Carlos were, were drawing out, like, what is it to be the elite? Um, so in some sense, I think they, they were more elite. Um, and then you have essentially the ungentlemanly revolt. That's really how I see the the last decade of the Republican Party. You see the ungentlemanly revolt under Trump, and then DeSantis coming in behind and saying, "Well, I'm actually going to execute on this. I'm going to do this in more less of a trolley way and more of a serious, competent executive." Um, I think they used the term "energy in the executive." Um, I think that that pro the, the guy was probably right. That would be a good title for DeSantis's book. I haven't read the book, but I'm just thinking that's a good title for DeSantis generally, Energy and the Executive. Um, and anyway, I, I find it to be a very organic transformation uh, based on the political victories and losses over the last 20 years in this country. Um, but obviously it was portrayed as sort of cynical. Well, I, I, yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting. You say, yeah, the Tea Party was an educated movement and Romney won college educated twice. This was around the time of the Tea Party, although Romney wasn't, you know, a Tea Party guy. Uh, nobody says that about MAGA, though. So in a, in a way, they, you know, the populace are sort of a, uh, you know, they're d different class of people um, and sort of. Like, I don't know what's, I don't know just like if DeSantis, you know, like he naturally shifted that way or he blew with the wind, you know, it's either was possible. I, I wouldn't have any way of, of knowing. Um, but I think that, the, I think there was this sort of contradiction at the heart of the, the Tea Party and that like a lot of people, I think like you, um, I'm assuming, um, were like, did they, they did believe in capitalism and small government and constitutional limits. And some people were into that stuff. And then a lot of people just, 
you know, they were interested in it because they thought Obama was born in Kenya, right? Um, and so, like you say, this progression, but like there was polls in 2012, like if Trump ran 2012, he was like actually ahead of the polls. He might have been able to win in 2012. Um, and he, you know, his entire thing, the only thing he talked about um, to get to get that popular on the right was Obama's birth certificate, right? Um, and so to be like, there, there, like, there is like, there was like this reaction to Obama and the liberals say it's racist. And I think like, yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the birther thing, I mean, is clearly there's, you know, something racist. I don't think there's logic, you know, I don't think there's real logic or like a defensible uh, understanding of that. Um, but I think that was sort of just like, it was just like a tribalism from the start. At the mass level, although it had this like veneer, this intellectual elite that did care about, you know, small government and these things that I like and you like. Um, but, you know, that that sort of that MAGA was there. It wasn't really necessarily um, it wasn't necessarily reactive to events. Um, do you sort of have a, uh, a disagreement with that sort of sequence of events? Yeah, look, it's that view of the Tea Party is really common in elite media and it's couldn't be further from what I observed, honestly. Um, now, maybe just the three places that I was in, which was San Diego, California, um, Phoenix, Arizona, and Central Virginia. Um, so, you know, the Tea Party was a diffuse movement. It was genuinely a popular and populist in that kind of core sense movement in that there was no centralized leadership. Um, I, I did not see nearly as many. I really felt like the media was nut picking. There would be one guy like that in a crowd of hundreds and they would talk to him. Um, I just didn't observe. But the, the I, I think for sure I never observed. I don't think I yeah. ever once observed any hostility towards Obama because of his race. Um, well, yeah. And I, I think, I, I, was, think I, I think there was I think there was a lot of suspicion, if anything, I, that, that Obama was sort of felt foreign, not because he was black, but because he seemed like a European intellectual. Um, maybe, maybe. and I, I think that's, that is what he is. I mean, that, that he was sort of culturally held himself very much apart from America. Um, and I, I think they probably would have reacted yeah, yeah. in a very similar way to Woodrow Wilson, honestly. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. John, I mean, John Kerry, he might've been just a darker John Kerry. I remember John Kerry was attacked on sort of the same grounds, although nobody, nobody said he was born abroad. You know, like who knows if there's, <laughs> there's well, a lot of legitimately has this international past that yeah, made that more true. plausible, right? Like, I, 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 like, yeah, okay. I, if like anything, if anything, that mentality and that that particular conspiracy theory, I think, represented something else about the Tea Party movement that, and and it goes to the heart of why I, you know, why I've moved the same way that DeSantis has over time is the number of people. Um, that I talk to, I would call them tea party grandmas. Uh, and I say that with, with the greatest affection who would come up to me and they'd have their copy of the constitution and they'd point into it and they'd say like, see, if you just, this one weird trick, right? Um, this one weird trick in the constitution, we can make things go back to the way that they were. Um, and, and there was this like very sort of legalistic impulse to find one way to just prove that the Democrats were operating so far beyond the bounds of the constitution. Um, and it was a very naive sort of conception of politics, in my view, uh, now looking back. But it's, it very much was my conception of politics at the time. Obviously, I didn't believe that Obama was born outside of the country. But um, I, if anything, I would say that stems from the same impulse. It was like, then we can get him out. 
you know, <laughs> uh, then we can get him out of, of the way uh, because we think he's fundamentally ruining the country and we got to find this one weird trick to restrain him somehow in the Constitution. Um, but but I think this goes to the second biggest misconception of the Tea Party that I just see repeated all the time over and over again. In my view, again, this is anecdata. It's based on my experiences in the Tea Party. Um, but the overemphasis of, of the limited government piece of this and the budget, it was a part of the Tea Party. Um, it was something that was considered important, but it was, I think, equally an expression of cultural unease. Uh, that the country was transforming into something that was not recognizable. And it's, and of course, the left reads that as racism, which I think is ridiculous. Um, I think there, there was this cultural, real cultural unease with it. And I remember one of the things that I, I sort of found funny at the time and now look back, maybe find a lot less funny and perhaps a lot more wisdom in it. Um, when I was in the Virginia Tea Party and I was like first joining because I'd just gone to law school, right? Um, out there. And I, I was like, okay, well, I was involved with the Tea Party. I'm going to try to get involved with the Tea Party here. Um, and there was basically this one lady, she was just going on and on about Lady Gaga, right? And how Lady Gaga was the worst and like representative of everything that was wrong about the direction of, of America. And I was like, that's silly. I like Lady Gaga, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and, but, but I, I think there was a lot more of that, like a lot more of the cultural unease with the direction, uh, not only that Obama was taking the country, but generally like a lot of the presage of a lot of the culture war issues, the new development of the culture war issues around patriotism and American history, I think were very much starting to heat up. Um, and, and one of the biggest ob objections to Obama was exactly this, this view of America as they often did not use this phrase and Obama's very clever at making it sound much more moderate, but essentially this view of America as systemically racist as like having, you know, deep flaws at its foundation. Um, and, and I think there was a big reaction to that. So in many ways, I think it, it makes sense. I think a lot of the tea party people, again, I, I I've seen some polls to this effect, but it is my impression. So take that for what it's worth. I don't have an enormous set of data to back this up, but my impression was the Tea Party was very much split and leaning more Cruz than Trump, that Cruz was much more of a Tea Party darling in 2016 than Trump. But most of them yeah. voted for Trump in in the general election and then were quite happy. And then especially seeing how Trump was treated and how all of the norms, important norms in Washington were dropped in response to Trump. I think a lot of them very much became like extreme MAGA people. I think it's a lot of the same people, but I don't think they were his initial base. I think like Trump's initial base in the primary in 2016 was very much, this goes back to one of the first episodes we did, but was very much like white working class people who are not attached to churches, were not actually doing well with small businesses and stuff. And that was the Tea Party demographic that really only swung to Trump, I think, for the general and then became more fervent as his term went on. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to. I think we have like a, a disagreement, which we fleshed out a little bit last week. But I think there's more to talk about. But we'll, we'll set it aside. Like whether actually, you know, Trump was sort of more of a sinner or sinned against in like violating American norms. I think that's like a big, you know, I think that's a big uh, disagreement. But to stay on the DeSantis, uh, to stay on the DeSantis thing, I, I wonder what you think about this. And I, I think that there's a. Um, you know, like, you know, one thing Klein uh, and his guests talk about is that like every, every like successful presidential movement or candidate has like some kind of positive vision 
uh, for the country, right? Obama was going to be get us post-racial, even if we talk about like no more boomers and, you know, the, the arguments of the 1960s. Um, the, uh, you know, Trump make America great again. You know, there was a sense we're going to build things. And, you know, he says stupid things like we're going to send a woman to the moon. And, you know, he says like these, you know, or, or Mars or whatever, wherever he wants to send them. Uh, and, you know, it's always like this, there's just like, and it's sort of silly. And he talks about like, you know, uh, whatever, the United Arab Emirates have a great airport. Why is everything low like crap? There, there was like this, you know, sense of like, we're going to do great things, right? There was this, uh, you know, th- there was a sort of agenda of, dynamism uh and progress and i think you know i haven't read the i haven't read the 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 desantis book either um i listened to the klein podcast but you know i've watched i've watched a lot of desantis and you know uh heard a lot of what he says and so it rings true from my impression um and so i'll i'll take ezra klein's word for it that this is you know sort of the the you know the theme of the book is you know what's the positive vision here okay there's people who want to you know uh you know brainwash your children with critical race theory and gender ideology okay um there's a deep state that doesn't like you okay there's a media that's a bias you want to do things against them um okay uh what is like what is the desantis vision of like what like a great country looks like or like what he actually wants that's different i mean does the does the sort of the the pro desantis right like have an answer to this do they have something besides you know just wanting to crush the enemies i mean i think this does go to all of our deepest disagreements i'm not feeling particularly positive um and i I would wager that a lot of republican voters and even a lot of independents are feeling the same way i think this is a particularly dark time in American history. And I'm not sure that every campaign needs a positive vision. I mean, and even Trump's positive vision is, as you say, it's like, it's all backwards looking, right? Um, and that in itself is worth commenting on, right? It's it's um, it's backwards looking in, in, it's trying to bring back part of what people inherently, especially on the right, feel that they've lost um, gonna cut a way of life, yeah. you know? And, and so I, I think it's, it's, I think actually, I don't see it as particularly positive. And if you think about it that way, um, it's just saying we will make your life go back to the way it was before all this terrible stuff happened. Um, and maybe that's enough for DeSantis too. I, I don't know that. I, I feel like we, we have this idea that everybody has to have this positive vision and it comes very much from the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years of American politics. I don't know to what extent every person in the 19th century who ran for president had a positive vision. Um, strikes me, Andrew Jackson had a pretty negative one when he ran. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's, that's one of those many conventional wisdoms that isn't actually true in the Acela corridor or whether that is actually true when Americans are just such a fundamentally optimistic people that you need some kind of optimism. And to the extent that Ron DeSantis, I mean, I think to the extent somebody would ask him what his vision is, he'd just point to Florida, right? And say, life is good in Florida. People are free. We live much the way that we did, um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. There's none of this woke stuff. There's, you know, there were fewer COVID restrictions and it became a free state much earlier. We didn't have to deal with all of these problems. These problems aren't inevitable. Look, we can just go back to the way we were. Um, we, we have to do some very forceful things in politics and policy to get there. Yeah. So the, as far as the, whether well, optimism has always been there in America. So yeah, you talk about, um, yeah, uh, Andrew Jackson, not very, 
positive. You know, there's a good book called uh, Heirs to the Founders, um, and it talks about, it follows the career of three important, uh, you know, Americans who uh, didn't become uh, president, uh, Daniel Webster, uh, John Calhoun, and uh, uh, Henry Clay. And, I think, you know, I, I think I was, that's one of the books behind here. Oh, good. I yeah, haven't read great, it, though. My husband read it. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. It's, it's very good. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, highly recommended. Um, and you know, like you listen to them talk, um, you know, it, it, it quotes them extensively from their, you know, their speeches in, in Congress or the, or the Senate and they are, um, you know, they are, you know, they are, um, you know, and this was a time when rhetoric mattered a lot. Like, you know, they didn't have television, you know, they didn't have, you know, uh, sound bites, like people actually cared about, you know, what, uh, members of Congress said, um, and it like moved people and moved members, you know, members of the bodies. Um, and, you know, it's amazing, like the way they would talk, you know, so there, you have this quote from, uh, I think, John Adams, who he says, you know, I study politics, um, so my, you know, and philosophy, so my children will study music and art or something like that. It's just like, we are like, so advanced that like us, you know, us people in the late 18th century are sort of going to solve these problems. And if they could like see our level of wealth, they would, you know, I think from their perspective, it would be like, you guys should be, uh, you know, you guys should be really, <laughs> you guys should be really happy with the world. I mean, I think objectively they would say that and they would see probably spiritual problems. Um, but then you have this next generation like uh, Webster and uh, uh, Clay, uh, Clay and um, and uh, Calhoun. And well, like, Calhoun was, you know, getting pretty angry because, you know, the the slavery issue of this, you know, uh, you know, uh, and other things, the regional um, rivalry between the North and the South. Uh, but, you know, like uh, Webster and um, Clay, you know, they, their speeches are just like, we conquered this continent. We did all these awesome things. We're going to keep doing awesome things. Right. Uh, Andrew Jackson comes along, you know, that's, that's pretty negative. I mean, I think Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> fought a war, but I think he was pretty positive. I mean, I think, I don't know much about how Polk's, you know, uh, the, you know, they talked about the Mexican American war, but I assume there was a positive vision there. This was you know, the era of, um, you know, and then you go Roosevelt, you go, um, uh, you go, uh, Ke- you know, you go Kennedy, of course, you go Johnson, um, Clinton. Yeah. I mean, positivity skip is all a, the bearded nothings in the middle. Um, yeah, I skip the bearded nothings. I assume they were happy guys. I don't see them as firebrands. So yeah, I, I think that, uh, yeah, it does have a deep roots in American history. I mean, you mentioned Henry Clay. I mean, uh, it seems like there's actually a pretty fertile vein for either Trump or DeSantis to dig there, which is, I mean, Henry Clay's big thing was the American system, right? Building the American system using protectionism and then government funded projects. Uh, and FDR did, of course, much the same thing um, to the extent that rebuild America's infrastructure, um, I think, is a perennially popular issue probably yeah, yeah. That's, that's and is Trump, something yeah. that is probably potent for both Trump and DeSantis and especially is potent for that class of voters that voted for Obama a couple times and then voted for Trump and then probably voted for Biden. Um, I guess one of the problems there is that Biden, one of the few things that he has sort of done, right, is is he is willing to spend money on infrastructure, but that doesn't mean Trump can't <laughs> make it his rhetorically. Uh, it was very much what Henry Clay did. I mean, I, I tend to think there's more. So whether on the optimism, whether I'm right or wrong about the optimism thing, um, I do think there are probably more parallels to the 19th century. I, I think we overuse, especially parallels in the World War II, right? We're constantly talking about how we're like Weimar Germany or, and there might be something there, but I feel like it's overused. And we don't often look back to the 19th century. And I, 
in many ways, including especially like in, in foreign policy, right, where we're moving, looking to move more to a multipolar world. I mean, that seems it's to some degree inevitable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's probably a lot of fertile ground in explaining explanatory power of our era, particularly in the Jacksonian era, and then into the lead up to the Civil War, probably a lot more historical parallels to be mined and to be like lessons to be learned about the dangers of the era then it, it yeah it strikes me it strikes me we're a lot closer to 1840 than we are to 1940 yeah generally in but terms you, of our politics yeah so i mean going back to yeah going back to trump and his sort of positive vision i mean i do think that there was that infrastructure thing i'm a businessman remember you know you're gonna have so much winning you're gonna be saying oh, please we're sick of winning i'm gonna say keep keep winning i mean it was so vague and sort of stupid but i mean it was just this sort of uh yeah this vision of like it's just we're just gonna be awesome we're gonna be like you know all like you know just like a 1980s sort of you know uh movie of like the cool kids in high school or something. I mean, I think that's sort of, that's sort of the, the Trump uh, appeal. I'll dark at the same time, you know, immigrants, you know, changing culture, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but yeah, the DeSantis thing. Okay. Well, I, I don't think it's, first of all, I don't think the country is, you know, I don't think the country is there. Right. So like, you'll see polls, like 60% of people say, uh, you know, don't change your, uh, you know, you can't change your gender, right? Um, or it's immoral, change your gender. You've seen these recent polls where, like, it's not looking good for the trans movement. At the same time, most Americans support gay marriage now. So something that was seen as, you know, Republicans fought that were seen as extreme 10 years ago is now broadly uh, popular. If you ask people, you know, I've seen like polls with like contradictory stuff. If you ask people like, do we need to be more accepting of like LGBT people will say yes. They say, have we gone too far <laughs> in accepting LGBT? People will also say yes. So it's sort of like people have this like confused thing with like, okay, the trans stuff goes too far. Uh, but, you know, we all accept gay marriage now. That seems to be like where the, the median American voter is. Um, you know, there, I don't see any, like, I, I see most people don't like affirmative action. They don't like, um, a lot of the diversity stuff. I don't see like massive anger, you know, over this issue. I think the same is with immigration. I think that like, you know, if you have a negative, you know, you have a, like a, you know, a, a just a mostly negative vision, um, you know, the American people need to sort of be there with you for that, if that's ever going to work. Like, you know, you're going to have to have like a major majoritarian, you know, uh, sort of, uh, uh, coalition on your side. And I just don't see that. Um, do you do you see it differently? Yeah, I mean, in response to so I guess two two things. So um, I'll respond to what you said about the anger. Yeah, I do I do see it. Um, a lot of these these issues. So anger is what brought out one of in my whatever time watching politics the most um, aggressive and successful parent movement in whatever. And I don't know. I, I just don't know the history of how many times this has ever happened in politics, but um, an, an enormously potent political force of angry parents about directly about what their children are learning in school. I think that element of the culture war is huge and mm. underestimate, you know, I think it's actually yeah, the opposite I, of what people yeah. are saying that, oh, oh I, this is the, the anti-woke yeah. stuff is an elite phenomenon. Mm, this is a grassroots phenomenon. Parents are pissed about it. Um, I think it's it's a combination of the school closures, but then what people were able to see during the school closures for the first time, they basically sat in on social studies classes. And there's this bias to think that it's, oh, it's basically like how I was, uh, how it was when I was a kid, right? And and they actually saw the content that was being given to their children. I don't think that's going away. 
Um, uh, and, and the second thing I think people are, are, it's maybe more selective, but the diversity thing, I don't think they're sort of angry about it in abstract. It's more either the, the thing about what their kids are learning about America. Um, they're white kids being told that they're inherently oppressive and being segregated from their classmates. Um, I, think I, I agree with you, mad about I agree that, with you but, on the but, school stuff. Yeah. But uh, the, yeah. I think the more adult side of that, um, or, or unrelated to children, is, and I don't know how many people in America there are and whether they're sort of politically about to be activated in the same way. Uh, but I think it'll happen at some point. I don't know if it's in this election, the next election. There are a lot of competent white men in this country who are not getting promotions and they know why. Yeah, I think. Or their kids are not getting into university and they know why. Yeah, yeah. I think people have been making that argument. It's getting worse. I know it's getting worse. I think people have been making I'm still waiting for the whites to to sort of wake up and just get get sick of all the stuff. But but it's it's, it's accelerated so much since even since 2011 in terms of of the in 2011, a lot of these things were a finger on the scale. And it was kind of hard to tell. And especially if you were an applicant, let's say to Harvard, right? Um, It was kind of hard to tell because you know, you don't, it's not just GPA and SAT. Everyone applying has reasonably high numbers, you know, that the selection rate is so low anyways, that it's hard to tell. I think with these cases, and we can maybe talk about that, but with the the cases in North Carolina against North Carolina and Harvard coming out. um, And the, I I think that this, this realization is, is just so much more blatant than it was in 2011. I think there are a lot of people who know that they did not get a promotion or their kid didn't get into a school because of the color of their skin. And I think that that is a building. Okay. So what do you think happened in the 2022 midterms? If you're right, that there's this boiling anger at leftists and what they're doing, you know, the best test of that should have been the midterms, right? And Republicans had a terrible midterm given, uh, given the historical norm. So why wasn't there just a, a red wave? So first of all, there were two red waves, as far as I know, one in Florida, which you can say is either some, it's the Ron DeSantis factor. Um, but there was also one in New York. It, it just started from a low point, right? <laughs> it started, sure, the red wave started below sure sea level. But in terms states, of swing, no, no, but in yeah. terms of swing, I think over the crime issue. So that's one. Two, I, I think Republicans didn't put forward any actual agenda at all. I don't think Republicans ran on a lot of this stuff, except in the vaguest possible way. Um, and that was very intentional on the part of McConnell. He told the Senate, uh, you know, told everybody running for Senate, Republicans, there is no agenda. There's no like bullet points. There's no slogan. We are just anti-Democrat. Um, and I don't think that's very successful. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the parent movement is is just as potent now. Um, we talked about the Tea Party a minute ago. I worry that there's a limited window for the parent movement anyway, just because of that's the nature of ground up movements. They can be quite successful. Um, and I think this one will be, but, and they, the important thing is how many W's like actual long lasting policy W's they notch while they are sort of still engaged. Um, because people, I mean, you're, you're working against a full-time bureaucracy. Um, people are not going to be able to stay mad and engaged forever. Um, and then you always have the problem. I actually think the problem of the tea party was not the nuts. I think there were many fewer nuts than what the media portrayed as what what ended up killing the tea party was the grift right it was all of the packs who are sending tea party grandma 
a a like flyer that said we're going to get Obama out of office, and all they were doing was paying their family members as consultants. You know, I, I think I think it's I think the Tea Party got killed off by the grift more than the nuts. Well, I th- I think you know I, I agree with you that the the parent movement uh, is is strong, and that's what Youngkin uh, uh, you know sort of uh, that's that's the wave he rode. Um, the uh, and and you, the, you have two good things there for for conservatives for Republicans. You have majority on your side. If you ask people, you know, do you uh, you know support teaching gender ideology or gender theory to third graders or whatever? Yes, most people say no. And then you have the um, the intensity of preferences. Like parents really care. So that's 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 a winning combination. That that's great. Uh, but I think all this other stuff it matters. Like okay, people like oppose diversity affirmative action. But look, like the you know, but they also care about other things too. Like a lot of people got a lot of women i mean i think the wave sort of like you're talking about like this anger rising up i think it was women and women and the abortion issue um in 2022 right um i think the bad candidates trump uh, you know that style so like you might be right you know you might be right that like on net there's like some anger over the um some of the issues and from the conservative perspective things that people will agree with republicans on it's just like it's not so like overboiling that it can you know there's a lot of things people get angry about it's not so overboiling that it's like gonna be like something that's gonna overcome everything even if republicans ran on it i I think abortion was gonna be more important than uh dei no matter uh what in 2022 even if republicans had the uh best strategy imaginable i guess what what, i guess what you know what what i'm thinking is like if I, i think there's like has to be like a realization that like if DeSantis comes to power um, you know, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's likely at this point, but let's say DeSantis uh gets into power, let's say he has Republicans in House and Senate, let's say he lives up to the billing and like, you know, is just as effective um in the federal government as you know he was uh in Florida or you know, something something close to it. I think what it would be, and I, I don't think people should delude themselves with it, it would be a mind it would be a very um like a fifty-one percent American agenda, like people who got, you know, over 55% or whatever, you know, who got one, you got power in one election, you know, best case scenario does a lot of things, but they're going to have the, you know, they're going to have a normal backlash to it because the American people are just not at the place where they want anything radical and are going to sort of fall in line behind it. Even you should still probably do all those things, but I, I, I just don't think there's like, you know, the, a mass movement for like what DeSantis and what, you know, people on the right want him to do. Yeah. That, you know, that some of the stuff with the, he can do it, uh, but it's going to be, it's going to be costly and it's going to be divisive and there's, you know, going to be a backlash to it. Like there always is whenever there's an ambitious uh, agenda with the people in charge. Um, do you, do you see it the same way? So several things, one to quote my good friend, Rachel Bovard, political power has a purpose. It's not, you don't, you don't win elections so that you can put political power as a trophy on your shelf and polish it and look at it every day. You, you earn political capital and you spend it on behalf of the people who elected you. So yeah, some of those things will be less popular than some of the other things, but you know, that's, that's literally politics. Um, so the, the second point, um, you know, DeSantis actually is a counter, he's a good example of how leadership can lead polls on a lot of this stuff. Right. So he had a core group of people who supported him on these issues, but he, he won the narrowest of margins. Right now, Trump, of course, out there saying it's it's he's taking credit for it. Um, he stole it. Is it not, is not, a, not, not a totally um, not a totally uh, uh, illegitimate thing, by the way. It certainly helps DeSantis. Um, there's, of course, another theory. My uh, my friend Bill Maddox wrote this piece for The Wall Street Journal 
back when that election happened and very clever analysis of, so DeSantis essentially won, I think it was about a hundred or 200,000 votes that he quote unquote by statistics should not have won, um, from essentially black and Latino women. Um, and Bill makes the very convincing case that this is actually the result of, of the longer term school choice program in Florida, that, that Gillum ran really hard against eliminating that program and that there were essentially corresponding numbers of people, um, who mothers who had their children in these programs actively. Um, so they weren't voting in the abstract. They were people who quote unquote should have been in Gillum's column and switched to DeSantis. And I think he makes a pretty convincing case that actually school choice may have won uh, DeSantis, uh, the election on that, that narrowest margin. But um, in in any case, uh, he's somebody who came into power with a 50-50 state and made it into, and his agenda made it into um, a red state. Now, some of that's migration. Some of that has directly to do with, I bet you could say that's DeSantis's policies as well. If he hadn't taken the stand that he had on COVID, there wouldn't have been that mass migration into Florida. So he's he's built a durable majority on things that maybe initially he had a minority or 50% plus one behind him on. Um, but I think this is just overall, this is another way in which we are more like the 19th century um, than we are for mid-20th. Uh, we have high turnout elections, relatively speaking, um, from, from previous baseline. We have high turnout elections and pretty polarized, you know, visions of the world. Um, and I, I, like some of these things, I, I think you're right, for example, that the abortion issue especially drove out single women, um, who are pulling away statistically way, not just away from men or from the median voter, but also from married women. There's just huge statistical outlier. I mean, single women are perhaps the hardest core constituency for the democratic party, right. Um, other than perhaps black voters, but, um, and much bigger constituency. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I, I, I think, yeah, a lot of these issues are going to be drivers on both sides and it's a turnout game. So it's not so much about winning independence so much as it is about making sure that your turnout is just as high and your base is just as energized as the other side. So the abortion issue definitely energizes the left um, and, and their voters. It abs- Trump himself is this kind of like two-sided coin, right? Where he drives huge Republican turnout. And you see this in the election results. He drives huge Republican turnout. He had a bigger turnout than he did last time. But he also drives Democrats out at the same time because they just really, really can't stand him. Um, and it motivates them to go to the polls and even in huge numbers. Now, how those two numbers balance out, you know, who knows what happens in 2024. But I, I, I do think that, again, this is more like much less like the Karl Rove 50% plus one type elections and much more like the 19th century where you have large turnout, very different visions for the future of the country, like, and, and sort of polarizing visions. Yeah. I mean, I'm repeating myself and being interviewed, but yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the, I, I like that point that, you know, leaders can sort of change public opinion. And yeah, I've written about DeSantis and what he did in Florida. I don't know what the secret is, but yes, I mean, something worked to shift that state. And I don't think the migration was a huge thing. The numbers, you know, you look at the numbers and it's just not enough people moving there. Maybe the people who moved there were like really excited and like talked all their friends into being conservative or something. You know, that's a theory one could have. I, um, I also think not- it screwed us in New York. I think we would have gotten Zeldin if everyone hadn't moved to Florida. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Everyone's uncle who's just right wing, like just 
wasn't yeah. there to talk their ear off about how bad the liberals are. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I like that idea and it's going to, it would be, you know, if we had a dissent this presidency, it would be an interesting test of this because if you look at sort of a, approval ratings of presidents over time, you know, George Bush, um, hit like 90% after 9-11 and then went down and was eventually at like 28% or something. Right. And so we had wide variation and generally presidents tended to be popular. Like a, a normal presidential approval rating was like 55, 60. Now we've had three straight presidents, Obama, Trump, and Biden, where the, the approval rating doesn't shift much. It doesn't get too high. It doesn't get too low. They all, and Trump most of all, right? Um, they, they all, they, and I, I maybe Biden most of all. I mean, it's very, very narrow range. I mean, they're within, you know, 40, 45%, no matter what happens, right? Trump had a honeymoon period. Obama had a honeymoon. I think Biden might have had a little bit of a honeymoon period, but basically these have all been 40 to 45%. And so, the theory is maybe, well, maybe that's just those three presidents. Maybe it's just Biden, Obama, Trump. Um, the other theory is that like, they're, you know, that's just like sort of the internet age, fractured media. And like whoever the president is, um, we're going to be paying a lot of attention to him and we're going to be, you know, picking at him and, and finding flaws and he's going to be unpopular, right? Like it could be, we could have 40% approval presidents for the rest of our lives, whether the people, you know, like their agenda or not. Um and, you know, dissent, you know, and if, if Biden wins next time, you know, it's still going to be Biden. If Trump wins, it's going to be Trump, right? We're going to have a 40% approval the entire, the entire presidency. There's nothing, you can't imagine anything that would happen that would like get Biden or Trump to 60% approval. There's just like nothing, right? And almost impossible to imagine getting 25% approval. Now could, if you had a DeSantis and like, you know, he had like a governing majority and he was like competent and like good at his job and the economy was good. Like, could he be like another, like, could we be? Like, again, like we had with, you know, Clinton or Reagan, could he be a 55, uh, 60% or Bush, you know, for most of his presidency, George W. Bush, uh, something, something along those lines. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the answer to that. I don't know if it's theoretically possible. I, I, it's probably is theoretically possible. Um, is DeSantis sort of, you know, would he, would he wear well on a national level? Um, I don't know, but I think that would be sort of like the interesting thing if we did have somebody other than Biden or Trump. I just, I don't think there's a good chance we will have anyone besides Biden and Trump. So it's, it's more theoretical than, than something we'll find out anytime soon. No, I mean, I suspect you're right. I mean, <laughs> in terms of the, the chances, not to be morbid, but I wonder what the chances are of like actuarially, like actuarial tables of Biden just dying during the election versus the chance that DeSantis beats Trump in the primary. Like, I wonder which side of that is less likely versus more likely. <laughs> but, um, sorry for the morbidity but um yeah i mean like you would think that that something that would get the country to really high approval like uh would be something external um except that i don't think even that is is true anymore uh you can see what happened with covid and maybe this is uniquely the fault of trump i mean he just did not give people in those initial months of the pandemic any sense of kind of comfort or competency um, and I know that now Republicans criticize, including DeSantis, is now criticizing him, saying, like, you kept Fauci in power for way too long. Um, but I, back in, in the 2020 election, in the middle of the 2020 election, and, and polls back this up, even Republicans thought he was just not handling it well. And I think a lot of it had to do with pure style, right? People enjoy the Trump show most of the time. Um, they think he's really funny and for good reason. But in that moment where things actually seemed really scary, the fact that there wasn't a steady hand on the tiller, I think, really did weigh on Trump's chances. Um, and 
the conventional wisdom in 2019 was Trump was going to cruise to reelect, right? Um, because he had a booming economy. And even oh, though he I, was I, approval I, rating. I, I, I don't know if polls ever showed that. I mean, like if he had a booming, but Trump was always a 40, 40% approval. Yeah. So when I say cruise to reelection, I don't mean that Trump would ever get 60%. I'm saying like the, 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 the good money was to, to bet on Trump re winning the election by some maybe small 50, margin. Maybe a 55% yeah, yeah. or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but COVID didn't bring us together, right? It, it went in the opposite direction now. And I wonder if even that kind of, uh, even that kind of exterior event uh, is capable yeah. of bringing do you, do you the American politics the back together. Do you remember the 9-11 era? I think you're younger than me. Maybe you don't. I, I remember it. Um, I, I don't have a good perspective on it, not because of age. I remember it very clearly, um, but because I lived in Palo Alto. And the response was already, I mean, I, I really feel like Palo Alto is just chasing me um, in the world. Like I got away from it as quickly as I could. And now it's coming back like Palo Alto culture, Palo Alto people are just running the entire country. I think that's a great negative to us. But uh, there was no pull together after 9-11 in Palo Alto. The, the local paper on the day after 9-11, right, September 12th, 2001, um, ran their primary response to 9-11 was to worry about backlash against Muslims. Really? That quickly? Yeah. You know, I, that, I, like I, literally I, 24 hours. Okay. That's, that's surprising because I remember the culture of the time and my impression was just like everyone was waving flags. You know, there's something called New York Road here just in LA County. And I, I wondered why it was called New York Road. And then I saw a sign like in honor of like 9-11. So it was like a thing where like it seemed like Palo Alto must have been a uh, – must have been a different planet, but yeah, the Bay Area, the Bay, the Bay Area is weird. I guess nothing, nothing should surprise. Yeah, me. no, I, I, I believe everyone when they say that we, people came together. And, uh, you know, the liberal New just, York just cheered when, when George W. Bush threw out the pitch at the Yankees game, right? Like, um, and and Bush enjoyed really, really high approval ratings all through like that period, right? Obviously, they declined over time. There's a limit to that, that, uh, that boost, but I, I don't see anything comparable, even bringing i think actually events from the outside now deepen our divisions in other words we are so divided over our vision for what this country is and should be um that exterior events just actually deepen those divisions i think that's what happened in covid right um i, I think any chance to deal in a serious way um from any sort of side of the covid debates with covid as a non-political issue disappeared in june 2020 when they allowed people to march after banning funerals, right? At, at that point, so many of the people, a lot of the Republicans that I knew who had been going along with a lot of the restrictions were like, well, no, screw this. Like, this is just, this is a hoax. This is a, you know, this is, uh, this is just nonsense. Um, and I, I think the same thing would happen. Yeah, I think, I think you're probably right. And so on that, uh, Sad, sad note. note. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> that about that. Note. No, it's okay. We will, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week.